Hello, and welcome to the latest in the Walkley Foundation's ongoing podcast series, which brings you the best journalistic talent from Australia and around the world. Our, um, our next session, we'll, in our next session, we'll hear from two of our leading uh, journalists. These will be our big stories. First up is Hedley Thomas. Uh, Hedley is the Australian's National Chief Correspondent. He's also the author of Sick to Death, a book about um, surgeon uh, Dr Giant Patel. He's a member of the Walkley Advisory Board and he's one of our most celebrated investigative journalists, having won a number of awards, but of course most notable among them is the Gold Walkley. Welcome, Hedley. Thanks very much for... Uh having me. I really appreciate it. It's got me out of um, covering a, um, uh, an inquiry today, uh, an inquiry that's being held up at uh, Gatton in the Lockyer Valley. So I've been, um, been able to slip away and dress casually and it's really nice to be here. I um, don't do a lot of public speaking and that's why I prefer to write some notes. So bear with me and um, I'll slip through these. Um, while thinking about today, I, uh, I did ponder a fairly straightforward question. I asked my wife, and uh, that's because she's a lot more reliable on these matters, and I expected that she'd give me a straightforward answer rather than the self-serving answer, which would have been my own response. I said to her, darling, if I were to suddenly lose my job at The Australian, do you think that I could cut the mustard as a freelance, as a, as a journalist, freelancing for, for a living and raising our own children? Um, and I'll let you in on her reply a bit later. But the truth for me is that the idea of freelance journalism fills me with trepidation and, I've got to admit, fear. Um, What you do in making a living from freelance journalism, I think, is remarkable. I frankly don't know how you do it. I think that perhaps we need a Walkley Award to acknowledge freelancing. For me, it is partly fear of the unknown. It is partly the insecurity that I think that many journalists innately feel, am I good enough? Will a commissioning editor trust my pitch? Can I even deliver the story to match my pitch? Will I be paid as promised? Can I make this story work financially when I deduct my expenses and add up the time that I've expended on this? Can I meet their deadline? Will they think the story is garbage after I've delivered it? If they think the story is garbage, should I pay them for wasting their time? These are some of the questions that I found myself asking when I considered the challenge of freelance journalism. And my wife said that I am indeed a doubting Thomas. I'm raising this now though, because when the Walkley Foundation asked me to come and talk today, we kicked around a few ideas and we came up with this one, dig deep the online treasure trove for investigative reporting. That's the subject today. And I told the Walkley Foundation that asking me, a salaried journalist with a relatively safe full-time job on a national daily newspaper, uh, notwithstanding that it may or may not have made a profit for 50 years, but we won't go there, (laughs) uh, asking me to give tips about freelance journalism to accomplished freelance journalists seemed a bit odd. It strikes me that it's a bit like giving advice to Bronwyn Bishop on creative ways to claim your expenses. It's a bit like explaining to Clive Palmer 
our very own Clive, how to be a headline-grabbing media tart. But there might be one angle that I can usefully suggest to you today, and it's the angle that I think I would pursue if my employer punted me from my full-time job. I would become a voracious reader and examiner of some of the occasionally riveting and completely free stories about the lives of ordinary and extraordinary Australian people, businesses and government departments that are involved in civil litigation across this country. I would look at the hundreds and hundreds a month of civil cases in what would seem normally innocuous proceedings such as those run in the Queensland Civil and Administrative Tribunal and all of its counterparts in the other states. Because these proceedings are rarely covered by mainstream salaried journalists. And there are understandable reasons, I think, for why they're not covered. The court reporters, such as those for the Australian and the Courier Mail and Nine and Seven and Ten and so on, they're going to focus on the high-profile murders, the major fraud cases in the Supreme Court. They're going to go where most of the viewer and public interest is. And as a result, the, the tribunals often go unremarked. But for the freelance journalist, for whom time is your own money rather than the, than the employer's money, the material in these tribunals can truly be a treasure trove. For a start, the story, the documentation, is in the files, and it's the, the detailed affidavits, the submissions, the outlines of the case, and so on. And it means that much of the research has already been done. It's been done usually by a solicitor who's paid hundreds and hundreds of dollars an hour to pull together the facts from numerous witnesses or key parties. And for a freelance journalist, it just feels like low-hanging fruit. Another benefit is that this material attracts qualified privilege. So you've got excellent legal defences in the event of someone wanting to sue you or the newspaper or magazine or blog or whatever that you've decided to send your story to. So you're probably wondering what kind of stories might you find in these tribunals? Well, I'd hazard an educated guess that some absolutely astonishing, jaw-droppingly great scoops have gone completely unreported and unknown because these low-key tribunals do not get covered. And sometimes the cases are settled quietly and there never is a judgment. There's never a record of a resolution online. But if you keep an eye on the online registry, on what has been filed by the parties that are in dispute, you can still write a fair and balanced long-form magazine feature or a news story. You don't need to wait for the judgments. You might get great ideas from the material that's been filed before there's been a judgment. Let me give an example. Earlier this year, a contact tipped me off about a very hush-hush investigation at an old folks nursing home in the leafy Brisbane suburb of Brookfield. Now I drive or walk past this home every day. It's just a short distance from my own home. But I had never heard of any serious problems there. My contact told me that the allegations about the conduct there were really very serious. 
and she suggested that the matter might have once come up in the tribunal. I discovered that the online searching options for the tribunal are really good. It didn't take me long. I didn't have to wear out any shoe leather. I just used the keys on the keyboard and I soon found a reference to a case involving the home. And I made a request, a formal request, to the registry to inspect the documents. It's really very straightforward. There's no investigative skill involved. So in a small office under the watchful eye of one of the tribunal's staff, and I think that's because they suspect a journalist is going to steal the files and not allowed to read them unsupervised, I read a thick dossier of really very serious statements, statements to police, to the Medical Board of Australia and to the tribunal. There were statements to the homicide squad. And the statements were from nurses, doctors and executives of the nursing home. And what was it they were going to all this trouble about? Well, let me read to you the first few paragraphs of one of the lengthy stories that we actually published as a result of this detour into the archives of the tribunal. A senior aged care nurse is at the centre of a serious investigation by health authorities four years after fellow nurses told police they feared that frail residents were being euthanised. Nurses Linda Harrison and Sean Marley and the head of the Baptist Union of Queensland's troubled aged care business, John Campbell, have made formal statements to criminal investigation branch detectives. The group's executive manager of aged care, Jacinta Garrity, who was involved in briefing police, filed a detailed affidavit two weeks ago for an ongoing regulatory authority disciplinary case that began in 2011. The statements to police, who have put their probe on hold, and the documents held by health agency investigators relate to a nurse facing a professional misconduct case. They paint a disturbing picture of the treatment of three residents at a Brisbane aged care home. The three who are suffering from a range of illnesses, including dementia, have died. That was just the first few paragraphs and the story went on for a couple of thousand words. Now, I should add that the senior nurse who was accused in this matter, she strenuously denies ever trying to harm or euthanise any residents. And she was understandably very alarmed at the implications of what she says were mistakes by her in departing from protocols and the instructions of doctors. She denied any wrongdoing and she said that she always had the best intentions and the best outcomes in mind for the residents. But my point is simply this. We had just stumbled on a long-running investigation involving really serious claims by staff that they suspected that elderly people were murdered by a cold-blooded nurse wielding a syringe driver in a Brisbane aged care home. And despite the seriousness of this investigation by the authorities, there had not been a single word published about this in the years previously in the media. There had not been any leaks from the police, from the nursing home, from the tribunal, from the medical board, or from any residents or their loved ones. At any time, over the past few years, any member of the public and any journalist could have devoured this material. They could have devoured it at no cost and then published it with all the protections that come with qualified privilege. And thanks to the extensive detail in the dossier, we were able to contact the next of kin of some of the deceased. Even they had not been told by anyone that their dear aunties and parents had been at the heart of a homicide investigation. Now, I think this case might be a bit exceptional in terms of it going completely under the radar, despite this 
very sexy and newsworthy angle. But the truth is that I don't know, because I don't have time to be closely monitoring what happens on a daily basis in this tribunal or indeed in any of the dozens of other tribunals in Australia's states and territory. For all I know, there may be many, many uncut gems in these places, in these proceedings, which never see the light of day, are never polished by a professional journalist into a powerful long read, a striking news story, or penetrating analysis. So I think as journalists, we're often too captive to the frenetic 24-hour news cycle, and I understand why that happens. But if I were a freelance journalist, I reckon I would take a thick blank notepad into these tribunals and I would sift through the boxes of these live cases and I would feel smugly confident that I had this little treasure trove largely to myself. Thanks for hearing me. Now I think we've probably got some extra time so I'm happy to take any questions or uh, yeah. How um, unable the big institutions often are to cope with things that are just left of field. So, for example, I was at a forum at the ABC, I think three years ago, and I looked around this room and I thought, I'm the only person here who's actually got the time in the sort of stupidity to really go here. Mm. And three years later, the, the, the sort of the legacy of that's kind of standing true, and that. Um, I'm sort of in an area now where no one else is because they're kind of hamstrung to these big organisations. And I just, I think what you were sort of s speaking about there kind of led through to that for me. Yeah, I think um, it sounds like you've found a niche that, you know, is something that you can um, almost dominate. And that was part of my point. If you're going to be a successful freelance journalist, um, I would just stay away from what you think everyone else is doing and try and forge your own path that is um, unique, that you can develop special expertise in so that uh, you own it. You really are seen as, you know, the go-to person, the guru. And, and, and whether that's in what, what you're practising or whether it's being, you know, what I might... Um, colloquially call a, a rat of the registry, you know, of the tribunals just snooping around that stuff for the, the, the low-hanging fruit. Uh, it's a matter for you. I'm sure that there are other options, but, but that's, that's what I hit on. I thought, if I, if I lost my job, where would I start as a freelance? And, and sometimes these cases that never get checked, the, the, the stories, the backstories in them are, are quite fascinating, you know. Um, Disputes over massive wills, for example, you know, inheritances, and, and, and you can bring those stories to life. Uh, Headley, hmm. you were talking about letting your fingers do the walking for a lot of this research. Is it true or an urban myth that the giant Patel breakthrough came from you just getting online and going, I wonder if this guy, you know, where's he from and what's he been up to? Uh, absolutely, that's true. <laughs> it's... Uh, it's, it was a Google search, and so it was 2005, and I think, you know, everyone uses Google now more than, than perhaps they, uh, you know, drink, have a glass of water. I mean, it's just the, you know, the, the, the done thing. But at that time, it wasn't used as widely, and, and uh, you know, I came back from a trip to Bundaberg, having spoken to 
a lot of nurses who were really concerned about Jayan Patel. You know, they were really worried that he was harming people. And one of them had said to me at this, this private dinner we had in the nurse's home, she said, he can't have become a bad surgeon overnight. You know, I didn't understand quite what she meant. And I asked her, so what, what do you mean by that? And she said, well, he's, 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 he's been so terrible here that he has to have a record. He has to have been bad wherever he's practised because at his age and his stage and so on, and, and he's worked overseas, there has to be a trail of, of injuries, of victims. And, and that thought was what prompted the Google search. And, you know, about halfway down the first page, up came the evidence of his really serious disciplinary record in the US that uh, he had lied about. Hmm. Um, I just had a quick question. I, I work at the State Library and um, we try and work with lots of um, organisations to make accessible things like government gazettes, court proceedings, Hansard, that sort of thing. Can you talk a bit about, I mean, due to intellectual property, we can only digitise a certain kind of period, you know, pre-1955, there's a lot of stuff um, available online, but there's a lag because of intellectual property concerns. But um, how you could see interrogating, you know, these kind of records in the future if more was made accessible? Yeah, I think that it would be really good if um, uh, organisations like the State Library, like the State Archives, uh, in trying to promote this material, relied on experienced journalists or former journalists to help them sift the wheat from the chaff. Uh, in the State Archives, for example, which um, is down at Runcorn, takes about 45 minutes to get there. I love going to the State Archives. I don't know if anyone else has been there. You can sit there and request files going back to, well, early settlement. You can. They'll bring them out on a little trolley and, 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 and you can inspect them. And you're just thinking, there's so much material here. And people interested in the Bjorki-Peterson era. Um, again, you know, files going back to uh, that period that have never seen the light of day from his, his office. But it takes, I think, um, expertise in, in what is most likely to catch public attention and interest um, in those organisations to, to actually um, promote that material. Uh, too often, there's great material there that, that, that again goes unremarked because it hasn't been identified by someone with journalism backgrounds, with journalism background, to say, that would be a fantastic story for 60 Minutes or The Australian or whatever. And, and uh, I think it, uh, it would be a great idea for some of the... Um, these organisations, perhaps your own already does this, to have people with that expertise. Yeah, hi. Hi, Hedley. Um, uh, have the uh, strategies um, to um, try to um, um, help, print, help the print version of the Australian continue, have those strategies and what are they um, affected you as an investigative reporter and your work and yeah. your colleagues? Uh, first of all, in terms of um, being an investigative reporter, I think that all reporters should be investigative and sometimes I kind of balk at that label because my view is all journalists need to be curious and sometimes having that label, it distinguishes you from other journalists who are also curious and, you know, I, I feel a bit uneasy about that at times. 
Your question, though, in relation to the strategies, I guess you're talking about the development of you know, the paywall and, and, uh, and the website. Yeah, look, I've um, only found support and encouragement from the Australian through that, that process. I, I see our figures in terms of um, digital subscriptions are over 70,000 and still growing. Um, you know, I made a comment before about the Australian not having been profitable, as I understand it, for, for most of its 50 years. However, I believe that we're fast approaching the point where you know, the balance sheet will actually show that there was money made, which has uh, got to be great for you know, the paper's future and for the journalism that, that it practices. Uh, I feel really fortunate to work for a paper that, notwithstanding its unprofitability, is still part of a bigger group that can afford to carry it and carry the journalists who do the very best they can. Right. Thanks again. Okay, thanks again, Headley, for being so generous with your advice and support. Okay, so we'll move on uh, to our next big story, and we have Andrew Fowler with us this afternoon. Andrew is an award-winning investigative reporter and journalist and contributing reporter for ABC's Foreign Correspondent and Four Corners programs. He's the best-selling author of The Most Dangerous Man in the World, which, of course, is about Julian Assange. And I think we owe Andrew a lot for that book because it brought a lot of truth to, to an area you know, where there was a lot of um, misinformation and um, you know, a really important story. So Andrew's latest book is um, The War on Journalism. And there it's here. <laughs> it's just launching this week, yeah? Okay, so, and there are copies in the bookshop, and if it's, you know, going on your last book, I don't think you want to miss getting a copy of this. So, Andrew, please welcome. Well, as you heard, my name is Andrew Fowler. I used to work for Four Corners um, and Foreign Correspondent, and I retired um, uh, somewhat injured. Um, I retired 18 months ago. That was a joke. I wasn't really injured. I just, um, I just had enough. I uh, reached retirement age, and um, I wrote this book, The War on Journalism, because I've been a journalist, um, whether or not you can believe it, for 50 years, which sounds like another face cream. Wonderful. Um, and I, th you know, I just thought that things had changed so much since I first entered the business as a, a rather keen green, enthusiastic young sports reporter at the age of 17, so now you can work out how old I am, um, in uh, Mid-Sussex, in a very small newspaper in Mid-Sussex. And over the years, I've just seen the business that uh, I so loved and embraced as a youth change so much. And change so much, sometimes for the better, but just recently, I've got to say, a lot for the worse. And you've heard about, you know, you're journalists and uh, or people that know journalists or you want to be journalists and you know about the rivers of gold, the things that funded newspapers for so long that really have turned into, you pardon me saying this, rivers of blood as the newspapers have just bled red ink all over their balance sheets. And with that, they've got rid of many of their journalists and, um, and turned to the internet and, um, and journalism and fast 
news stories to fill the gaps and hollowed out the middle, if you like. They've just hollowed out the middle of the business. So what's happened has been that you know, journalism has really famously been said as being something that somebody else wants kept secret, the rest is advertising. And that's never been truer than it is today, where governments and large corporations spend millions of dollars, millions of dollars, just to persuade you, the journalists, that their story's better and their story's right. And they try and shut out information that you want that the public has a right to know. So, so given that, um, that that's what's happened, I mean, that's, that kind of motivated me as I saw this happening to write this book. And one of the people that I, I met a few years ago, Julian Assange, um, was an extraordinary character. He was somebody who broke all the rules, somebody who, who challenged the orthodoxy, someone who said, you know, the public has a right to know. Without the right to know, the public will be ill-informed. Democracy is really going to suffer. And it was his big thing, and he championed the the First Amendment of the United States and, uh, and the fact that a good that did him, championing the First Amendment of the United States Constitution, which is uh, the right of freedom of speech. So you know much of Julian's story, so you know what happened to him. But really, what, what happened next is one of the things that really joins together all the bits. And um, there's a guy called Glenn Greenwald who wrote a, um, a, a very good book, which, uh, which told his story. Um, and what was interesting about Greenwald was that he was a, a lawyer. And like a lot of lawyers, he wanted to be a journalist. Um, so he gave it up, gave up the law, went to live in Brazil, um, and started blogging online for a, an online organization called Salon.com. And he particularly liked the work of Assange, and he, def he absolutely supported Assange's work. And, and you know, he was writing this stuff, and people were reading it in Salon and all the rest of it. And you know, you're thinking, oh, it's good stuff. It's good stuff. Then I like what you're writing. It's very interesting. But what he didn't know was that on the other side of the world was a young bloke working in the NSA. Now, 40 years ago, Glenn would have been writing his stuff and probably handing it out in Brazil and three or four people would read it. But now many people are reading it, including Edward Snowden, who was reading this stuff and saying, wow, hey, I like what this guy is saying. So I agree with him and I think it's important that this story, I, what I know, Edward Snowden knows, and you, I'm sure you know much of what Edward Snowden's revealed, the rest of the world should know about. So here's the internet connecting connecting this, you know, this insider who wants to be an outsider. Now, it's, it's really quite humorous what happened next because um, Snowden tried to contact, um, uh, tried to contact Glenn and he sent him a message and he said, look, I want you to use a special system called PGP, pretty good privacy. Does anyone know what PGP, do you use PGP, pretty good privacy? It's an encryption system, and it's, if you're a journalist, you have to use it. You've got to use it. I mentioned it in the book. You have to use it. It's absolutely essential if you were to prevent your stories from being garnered by others, um, picked up by private, private investigators, hacking into your emails, that sort of stuff. It's simple, you can down use it, download it, it's free. 
and it's what all the people that um, investigators use to um, protect their privacy. It's so good the NSA, I'm told, can't crack it. Well, they probably could if they spent a lot of time just focusing on one thing. So anyway, you weren't alone because Glenn had never heard of it either. So Snowden writes to him and says, you know, and Glenn's in his place in Brazil thinking, what's going on here? Who, who is this guy? A bit of a, bit of a nutter. Got his tin foil hat on. Don't worry about him. You know, we'll, um, I'll pick him up later. Then he gets a call from Laura Poitras, who's a famous filmmaker, who won an Oscar for Citizen Four, which is a very good film you should watch as well if you get a chance. It's a documentary. And Laura got in contact with him and said, I've got these documents, these Snowden files, and Snowden, Snowden you know, hands them over to Poitras, sends them across, and, and Glenn gets them. And he goes, to the, he goes, where am I going to place this story? Try to place it. Where are you going to place it? Place it in The Guardian. Not a bad paper. I mean, left of centre, more courageous than most. But what was intriguing was, why was it that Edward Snowden had not gone to his obvious choice of newspapers, the New York Times. Why not go to the New York Times? You know, the Pentagon Papers. This is the big, this is the biggest thing in America. He's a US citizen. He wants the United States people to know about what the NSA has been doing. Why didn't he go there? Well, Snowden says, I didn't go there because I didn't trust the New York Times. Because the last time the New York Times knew that the NSA was spying on its own people illegally, or with a, a, a very dodgy writ from a former president, basically, to do it, they didn't publish. They failed to publish. They waited for a year until after the election of the president, that was Bush W this time, before they published. And so he said, I'm just, I just don't trust them. Now, what's important to understand about that is that many whistleblowers do not trust what we call the mainstream media, what I call the mass media, because they think they're too close to government. They think that they are too inclined to go to the government first to check information rather than to get it out. And so the New York Times lost that story and it went to The Guardian. But let me tell you, The Guardian wasn't exactly raring. I mean, it was raring to publish, but it was um, dragging its feet at the same time. And it wasn't until um, Greenwald threatened to publish material online that that put a firecracker under The Guardian and they, and they published the story. Now, The Guardian will say, no, 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 we were going through due diligence, we were checking everything, we were being very careful, and they're a little bit touchy about this subject. But the fact is, it was several days when they had a very clear document that showed that the NSA was, through a court order, able to spy on the phone records of the Verizon um, telco in the United States. So, they had this clear document they didn't publish what um, Greenwald did, and this is where a freelancer, this is where being an outsider, this is where not being part of the newsroom, right? This is where it's, this is where it's really key. What he did was he threatened, if you don't run it, we'll go somewhere else with it. He bargained it. So here you have two things you learn. One is that the internet, which we use for Google and everything else, is all very well, but it's actually a way of, it's a way of communicating with people on the other side of the planet. I mean, you know, just anybody in your area, your specific area, that's, you know, you're an expert, you're writing on this subject, somebody in Kansas, somebody in Karachi will read your stuff. I mean, they do, I've got a Twitter account, I've got just a few hundred followers, but, you know, but they, they pick stuff up and they, and they come back to you and say, oh, if you've got this stuff, I'm interested in that. You get networks of information that can help you break stories 
that will change the world. And you, you're in your living room in wherever it is, Maroochydore, Brisbane, Sydney, somewhere, anywhere, Brazil. And that's what Glenn Greenwald also brought to the table and taught us as journalists. Um, as an outsider, he was outside the, the general culture that, it, that tends to envelop all journalists. Firstly, fear. You're fearful because you're taking on people that are really powerful. Do you trust your boss? Do you trust the editor? How close are they to the publisher? Who's, I mean, what are those connections and how dangerous is it for you to be out there doing this kind of work? Well, you know, you can actually get away from that problem by holding the story until you get it. The question is, how do you mirror what this super brain Glenn Greenwald did? I mean, the guy lives in Brazil, he's got, you know, he obviously earned a bit of money being a, being a lawyer. So you have to work at something else. You can't, not everybody can be Glenn Greenwald. You know, so you've got to work somewhere else. So I think what you should do if you're interested, if you're freelancers or interested in being a freelancer, you do something else, another job. It doesn't matter what you do. If you want to make a difference and you want to be a journalist or you want, or you want to earn a living in a freelance, it's hard to make a living as a freelancer. You don't need me to, to tell you that um, on a day-to-day -day basis. But if you can do other work and then, and then plug away at the main thing that's your passion, you find that the internet, um, despite the fact that it's dumbed down newspapers and, um, you know, caused a sort of, a, what can you call it, a, a narrow cast echo chamber um, can actually be extraordinarily helpful. So what we see then is, you know, at the end of it, the mainstream mass media dealing with this issue and, and really getting, I suppose, in The Guardian's case, getting a fantastic boost for their print publications. And the print publications are, as you probably know, they're the things that pay the pay the wages of the staff, and it's the reason why the thing's in free fall. It's the reason why journalists are out of work. It's the reason why the Herald sacked 1,200 and uh, News Corp sacked people, but I don't think revealed it. I'm not sure where it's Headley. Um, they, the, the numbers were a bit opaque. Um, but they're also in strife. Both the Herald, the Age, all the newspapers, the, the, the British newspapers, they're just bleeding, they're bleeding money all over the place. Um, so here's, here's the other side of it. Here's, the, here's an opportunity as they hollow out the middle and as the journos in the middle are doing nothing except, I mean, apart from a few exceptions, you know, managing to um, you know, just prick up the press release and, and, and change it a bit and then whack it into the system as we do at the ABC, or not we, sorry, as they do at the ABC, as they do, as they do elsewhere. Um, because there is no other way to fill the gaps. There is, in that hole, a place to negotiate a good story, because although they've got, not got that much money, they have enough money to pay for a good story. And if you're prepared to put the hours in, and you may be way, way, way below the minimum wage, but you'd be able to offer that story and negotiate with it, so that you could say, well, if you don't want it, use the Glen Greenwald. Well, you're not going to run it? OK, then we'll go over here. And um, I think it took The Guardian about five hours before they... And they were fighting off all sorts of things with the American administration, but they had their problems. I'm not, I'm not saying it wasn't a fantastic story. They did a really good job, and I think only The Guardian would have done it. I mean, certainly not News Corp. They would not have run that story. They've, they've accused Snowden and, and Assange of basically being war criminals and the same as uh, the Daily Mail done the same thing in London. So you've actually... Um, what you've got is an opportunity to, to negotiate a difference there. And 
I suppose that's really the lesson that I've, you know, I've learned in all my years is that, is that being able to negotiate is the best thing you've got going for you as a journalist. If you're always the person who's, you know, if you're in the newsroom and you've got nothing to sell, they're going to pass you over. You make a difference. Then they come to you and say, oh, well, you actually think that you might be able to do this. I mean, your strongest negotiating position is before you're employed and, and when you're leaving. <laughs> Those are the two, two choices that you've got to make a difference. And now is a third choice to be outside and to use the internet to go into the libraries, go into, I mean, Hedley was saying, go into the libraries, the archives. You don't need to necessarily go to Canberra. They're, so much is coming online. Or Washington. And look outside the country. It's all out there. The world is just right here. You know, I mean, I didn't turn my mobile phone off, so it's probably, you know, it's, it's on now. Um, which is another issue about security. But it's, it, it, it's a bleak time for journalism, a really bleak time. The one thing that's really good is that whistleblowers have a chance to leak and not be detected, and you can help them. And I think it's the thing that could well make a difference between whether we head towards a totalitarian world of complete surveillance and one where there's a chance to fight back and a chance to be free. And I think it's an important moment. And I think it sounds a bit pompous, but I also think it's true. Thank you. Can I just ask if Headley's been drinking out of this? Is that something? Thank you. That's all right. Uh, Adrian from Fremantle. Um, Mochadai Vanunu was in King's Cross, printed out the photographs of the Israeli nuclear uh, bombs and took it to the City Morning Herald where the official story is oh, yes. that they rejected the story. I just jumped to the Canberra Times. Jack Waterford used to joke about a certain correspondent who worked for a spy agency under the guise of being a journalist. Oh, yes. Vanunu was rejected by the Sydney Morning Herald. I've heard stories mm. that maybe it wasn't the Sydney Morning Herald that tipped off Mossad, but someone who worked within the Sydney Morning Herald. I guess I'm leading without going to paranoia. Oh. How do you manage the question of, um, you know, firstly, all the, the kind of paranoia that can creep in, and mm. secondly, the real experience of some people that uh, Australia's spy agencies spy on journalists and actually make life safe, unsafe for others. Mortsadai has been in solitary confinement now for the best part of 20 years, he thanks has. to the Sydney Morning Herald experience. Yes. Well, look, I'm not really familiar particularly with the Sydney Morning Herald experience, but I know about the... I think it was the Sunday Mirror in London that um, put um, Bob Maxwell, who was linked to Mossad, onto Venunu, and that's why he got entrapped in Rome and, and picked up. Um, and yes, the role of, the role of uh, intelligence agencies, the role of uh, Cecil King in London, the Daily Mirror in the 1960s, 1970s, um, the attempted coup of Harold Wilson, which sounds absolutely crazy. Again, what do you mean the Prime Minister of Britain was subjected to, what, a palace coup, basically, where, you know, Lord Mountbatten, the Queen's cousin, I think it is, um, was, in, was invited to form a government with the Queen Mother. I'm thinking this is complete nonsense. 
and I went on the internet of all places, can you believe, and I found a fantastic documentary made by, I think it was BBC, um, might have been Channel 4, anyway, it's on the net, it's called The Wilson Coup, and you can read it in conjunction with David Lee's book from The Guardian, and it's an extraordinary story, and it's in this book, and the reason it's in this book is because, I mean, firstly, I was born in England, and I worked in England for a long time, and I grew up in the 60s and the 70s in England, and I looked at it, and, and I thought, this is extraordinary, and I came to, because I came to Australia in 1976, and I went to work for the Mirror um, and, the, and then the telly and then, uh, then the backbench of the Australian. I worked there as a chief of staff and then acting, acting foreign editor because you can only act when you're a foreign editor of the Australian. Yes, okay. Um, so, uh, and, and, and I thought, this is, this is amazing. This is extraordinary. This is a look, at the, look at this timeline. Look what happened to Wilson. Look what happened to Wilson between, eight, between uh, 72 and 76 or, and 64 and 68, MI5 and MI6 were all over them. They were, there were bugs in number 10 Downing Street between, uh, I think it was 70, uh, something like 72, and it was after Perfumer, sorry, so 64, 62, and 77, they were removed by Jim Callaghan. And he was a former prime minister, and I'm thinking, oh my God, look at the time frame, and put that alongside what happened to Whitlam. And see what and see what conclusions you draw. Now, this is marvelous conspiracies, of course, but a lot of it's on the record now, out of the archives. And if you go to the archives and see the statements that were made uh, to Prince Charles by Kerr and all the rest of it, it's all been documented. You put it together, and you're saying reforming Labour governments have a tough time. That's the conclusion you reach. And that's a conclusion, I mean, here we are, so I'm giving it away, you see, you aim to read it. Um, <laughs> and these are the things that you find, you know, as you, as you start to have enough time to delve into the, um, the chronology of, uh, of stories and the, um, and the chronology of life and the 50 years that I've spent sort of as a sort of, uh, what can I call it, um, a journeyman making my way up the Mid-Sussex Times to Four Corners and you know, the wonderful experiences there and working with great journalists like Kerry O'Brien and you know, learning my craft through them and, 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 and having some severe conversations with EPs who question that I may be wrong, for example, which is hard to believe, you know, that the facts might not be right. Um, but those are the things that I've learned. But I can't really answer your question about Vanunu, although I think he was, he was fitted up by the people you know, journalists. And who are, the, who are the spies? I don't know. I've tried to find them. I mean, I mean, there were a few of them around. Suspicious characters. You don't need to look very far, actually, to see um, some of the problems um, in the crossover now between, um, uh, what can I call it? The corporate estate and its you know, governments, like the United States, for example, employing journalists to do work. And this is the crossover area, it's very grey. And uh, Paul Moran, who was a cameraman who was killed uh, in Kurdistan, um, sadly, um, was working for a CIA front company, uh, working for the Pentagon at that time, this Rendon group. And, and, and the thing is that, you know, if you're going to work in a war zone, don't have a history of working for a CIA front company. I mean, it's just, it, you're, gonna, you're drawing the heat. I mean, you're not only drawing the heat on yourself, you're drawing it on people you're with. Now, whether or not he was killed as a result of a targeted bombing, I don't know. But I uh, would not have liked to work with him. And I know people that, that uh, were very concerned about, about having him in the, uh, in, in, the, in the area because they, 
they, they knew he very easily got into, uh, into countries they spent years trying to get into, he would go in, and they were very cautious of, of working too close to him. So there's that, there's that other thing, which is the whole business of, you know, there's the, it's the military-industrial complex, as uh, Eisenhower called it. Um, uh, military-industrial complex sounds extremely left-wing, doesn't it? You know, it's like military-industrial complex. It's actually President Eisenhower, Republican, who coined it, the danger of those links occurring, and we see it increasingly with the internet and uh, with the power of governments and the, and, the, and the collapsing of the heart of the media of the fourth estate, you know, the thing that defends democracy against the executive power of the, of the uh, if I get it right here, the religious orders, the, um, in, uh, in, the, in the lords, the, the law lords and the, and the commons. So the, we're, we're the fourth estate. We're the people that say, we're going to hold you to account. We're watching you. Now, we're, sometimes we can be a little bit a little bit rough and a bit sort of a bit nasty journalist, you know. But the business, no matter, even though I don't agree with much of the stuff that's published, you can actually say you do a good job. You do. You're, you're there with a voice, and it's important to have a voice. Without that voice, you know, we have uh, well, we have a loss of democracy, and we have uh, a shift towards what um, um, Peter Grester, when he came out of, <coughs> excuse me, I've been talking a bit recently came out of Cairo and he gave his press club conference um, in Canberra and, um, and he said he said it's a binary system he said firstly journalists get too close to politicians or I'm not quite paraphrasing properly he suggested it was a danger of journalists getting too close to politicians what he also said is there's a, bin there's a binary link between on one side there's authoritarianism on the other side there's democracy and he said you must be careful that you don't go too much towards authoritarianism. He said, it's binary. In other words, it goes either this way or that way. There's no, there's no moderation. And we are in danger at the moment of heading too far towards authoritarianism. It's a very dangerous situation to be in. We're a very small country, about 20 odd million people with very powerful interests um, and uh, very powerful organizations that wish to change this country um, and I think you need to be careful about that. I think that that would be something that I would be taking a very, a very close interest in. Also, hey, it would be good fun too to actually take a close look at it. Okay. Uh, thank you, Ruth. Uh, thank you very much, Andrew. I think um, for independent journalists, there is some optimism in that story. It was a terrific um, presentation. Thanks for listening. Please subscribe to Walkley Talks on iTunes and follow the Walkleys on Twitter and Facebook for new episode updates to be the first to know about upcoming Walkley events and news.